Good morning. Hi. Uh, hopefully none of you saw how many sheets of paper I had walking up. Um, there's a lot to cover today, and so um, I will tell you that you, it would be to your advantage to take notes, um, because I don't think that you will remember all of it. I have to use notes because I know I will not remember all of it. Um, so if you want to know what it's like to be in my classroom, you'll probably probably get more of a taste of it today than, than you normally would. Um, before I get started, I do want to pray um, in general, but also specifically because um, there was a shooting at a, an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs last night. And yeah, I mean, I, there's, there's lots complicated I can say about this, but I would say I will be preaching about Haman, who is a person who decides to kill people because of who they are. Um, and we think, it, I think it's impossible to do something like that with the heart of Jesus. Yeah, so I'll pray for that, and then we should, we should get started. Father, thank you for these people. We know that you created everyone in your image, Lord. And it is always evil to destroy an image of God. We pray for the victims. We pray, pray for the perpetrator, Lord. We pray for all families. And we pray for people who this, this tears at their heart, Lord. We pray today also for your word. That you, your word would instruct us and that we would be ready to hear the many hard things in the story of Esther. Ultimately, Lord, we pray that we would come to worship you and that we could make much of you. Amen. All right, with that very serious start, I have to continue on in a very serious story that I think many of you are probably most familiar with through vegetables. Um, so if you grew up around Christians, there's a show, Veggie Tales. And I have not, I continue to not watch it. Um, I did not grow up with this story or with the show. Uh, and so I read the story and then heard later that there was a children's version of the story and was very confused. Um, so there are no attractive leaks in this story. Um, no Larry the cucumber. He's a cucumber, right? I mean, this is like how little I know. Um, yeah, and as you'll see, the story does not end where it ends in VeggieTales, right? Uh, there's a lot more. Um, but I will say, and again, it would be to your advantage to take notes because I'm going to start racing forward. Um, Esther, in the story of Esther, Esther is courageous and faithful and she is a savior of the Jewish people and this wonderful holiday in the Jewish calendar, Purim, is established to remember this stuff. She operates faithfully despite a culture that values men over women and uses women. I gotta set my timer because I know people are serving in children's church. Got to remember. <laughs> all right, I got it. Um, also, Esther also enacts a kind of justice, right? This is the part that gets left out that I'll talk about. But Esther not only saves the Jewish people, but she enacts a kind of justice. And everything in this story points us to Jesus in ways that we expect and in ways that we don't expect. Um, so there probably is a slide up here. Yeah, maybe. So I just want to recommend to you this, I don't know if anyone listens to Streetlights. Any Streetlights listeners? 
No, just me, right? So listen to this. This is a way to listen to lots of the Bible on highly produced audiobook type format, chapter by chapter. It's wonderful. It's free. It's really excellent. Um, All right, that's enough of that. I've listened to Esther many, many times now, um, having used this. All right, so in the end, this is kind of, uh, this is, if I was going to give you a big idea, I would say this is the big idea. In the end, Esther is more like the best of us than we might expect, and even so, points to the dire need for Jesus to complete the story and resolve and release the tension that is created in the the book of Esther. So a quick note for for nerds and for anybody who might be interested, um, there's a lot of scholarly disagreement about Esther about how true the story, or rather how factual the story is, but amongst Jewish scholars and amongst Christian scholars, there is very little disagreement that the story is true. Whether it occurred exactly as uh, it's stated, we don't know, but the meaning of the story is true. So do with that as you want. The plan is that I'm gonna give you a guided tour of the entire book of Esther, all 10 chapters. I kind of chop off the last chapter a little bit because it just kind of restates some things. And then we're gonna reflect on the, ch- the character of Esther that you really kind of only get if you get the whole story, which is why I'm doing the whole thing. And then we'll bring Esther and Jesus into conversation. So uh, just a quick disclaimer, this story has more than we can really handle in it. Um, everybody is gonna get something, but not everybody is gonna get everything. And that is okay, I think. I have lots of things to grab onto. All right. We're jumping into a story, a summary of 10 chapters. Here we go. Um, So the first part of the story you have to know is that there's something called the Persian Empire in the ancient Near East. It is massive. Um, uh, Cyrus the Great gets great press in the Bible because he ends the Babylonian exile. Uh, Xerxes, who's in this story, gets generally bad press for invading uh, Greece, uh, but... What you need to know is that Xerxes is a massively powerful person in a massively powerful empire. Um, He's having a giant banquet to celebrate his power, and he has all these dignitaries in. It's a very long banquet, and toward the end, when there's been a lot of drinking and celebrating, Xerxes asks for his current queen, Vashti, to come and be presented to the rest of uh, the dignitaries. Um, So we don't know exactly, but we're pretty sure that this means that she would be presented naked. Right, this is not a children's story, it turns out. Um, And Vashti refuses. Um, We don't really know exactly why Vashti refuses. We can think of lots of good reasons why Vashti might refuse. She's having her own banquet, for example. She doesn't want to be interrupted. She probably doesn't want to be displayed like this. Um, But for whatever reason, she refuses. Xerxes is uh, confused, right, about what to do. Xerxes turns to his advisors, and his advisors say, if you don't do anything to punish Vashti, uh, husbands all over the kingdom, are, their wives are going to disobey them. Right? So it it's immediately becomes a crisis authority about the relationship between men and women in the kingdom. And so uh, Xerxes decides he has to kind of exercise authority and banish Vashti. We think just banish, maybe more than banish. Um, And there's a declaration that, quote, every man should be ruler over his own household. So this is the beginning of the first great reversal in this story. By the end, Esther is not the ruler of her household, but she is certainly calling some of the shots. So Esther, who is Esther? Esther is a, a Jewish woman who is the cousin of Mordecai, and she wins a kind of like 
empire-wide um, beauty pageant to be selected as the new queen of Xerxes. Um, and this, as you might imagine, entails lots of really terrible things, right? Um, I will bring it up later um, again, but if you're struggling to imagine the kind of narrative that goes on in this story, if you've seen The Hunger Games, Katniss Everdeen is a kind of Esther, right? She is someone who volunteers for an unjust competition, wins the unjust competition, and then earns the respect of people, right? So we can go back to that, but I gotta get back to the story. I just wanna give you something to hold on to. Um, so there's plenty wrong with this beauty competition, but it also does raise Esther's status in the kingdom. Lots of people will come to care what Esther thinks. All right, at the, at the same time, Mordecai, her relative who adopted her, is telling her not to let anyone know that she is Jewish. All right, the next part is that we also have this Mordecai character who is a righteous man. Um, and he is sitting at the gate of the palace and one day he overhears the fact that people are plotting to kill Xerxes. And because he's such a trustworthy man and honorable person, he relays this story to Esther. And Esther tells Xerxes, the story is verified and the plot is defeated. And in a great book of the history of the king of Xerxes, um, this story is recorded. It's important for the plot later <laughs> that it's recorded. There's also this person, Haman. Now, Haman the Agagite, this is like points this out, um, is, becomes the top advisor to the king Xerxes, right? So he's above all the other advisors. And in fact, it even becomes law that you have to kind of like genuflect and bow to this person. You have to like show Haman respect. Now, Mordecai, Esther's relative, refuses to bow to Haman. Why? We're not exactly sure, but the Bible does indicate that he is an Agagite, which means he uh, is, is either literally related to the descendants of the Amalekites, who are kind of a great enemy of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, or he's just generally an anti-Semite. Um, we don't actually know exactly what it means, but we know that Mordecai knows this about Haman, and for that reason refuses to bow to him. So Haman is extremely prideful, um, and at he doesn't just hatefully plot against Mordecai because he knows that Mordecai is Jewish. He actually plots against the entire Jewish people. So here I'll quote from scripture. Um, this is what Haman says to King Xerxes. There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. I can't say a lot about this because I've got to keep rolling, but notice that this is both true and untrue, right? It is true that there is a people in this kingdom that keeps themselves separate, but not actually separate because Mordecai himself has tried to save Xerxes and successfully save Xerxes, and Esther is in the king's court and is his queen. It's also true that they have broken laws by not bowing to Mordecai, for example, but not the sort of laws that you would think actually matter. Anyway, I've gotta keep, keep running. I should also say, and again, this is too much plot to run through. This is, the story is also relevant because anti-Semitism is like alive and well today, 
right, and wrong, for what it's worth. Okay, so the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Habadatha, the Agagite, this person we've been talking about, the enemy of the Jews. He said, keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. So Haman chose a day to kill all the Jews. And this day was decided by lot. So Purim actually just means like the taking of lots, deciding a random day. So this holiday is actually, a, some, it's a celebration of this great reversal by chance. So the day is chosen far in advance, it's March 7th. You don't need to know that. It's several months away. And an edict of the king is, is signed and sent out. And so it's a law that people can kill the Jews on this particular day. And so Mordecai finds out, as do many other Jews, and they start mourning openly. And Esther is like, you gotta stop freaking out like this, like it's gonna ruin everything, like... You've got to calm down. You can't be coming to the palace gates and mourning like this. And Esther, Mordecai approaches Esther and is like, look, you're in a position to actually do something about this. I need you to go to Xerxes and, and implore him on our behalf. And Esther says, and this is like kind of the part where you probably are familiar with some of the story, Esther says, I can't just go and talk to Xerxes anytime I want. I've got to be asked to talk to Xerxes because in fact, this is the kind of like imperial power that we're dealing with. If you go to the king's chamber without being asked, you can be executed. So Esther says, I'm like really risking something if I go and talk to Xerxes unasked for and I haven't been asked to see him in 30 days, right? He doesn't necessarily want to see me. And Mordecai says, this is the part that people always quote, do not think that because, the king, uh, because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? You may have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And this moves Esther. Right? Esther was not going to do what we now think is the right thing to do. She wasn't going to do it. She hears these words and then she says, go and gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights or d night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do and when this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So uh, Esther is presented, you might say, with the kingdoms of the world and decides not to bow down to those kingdoms and instead risk her life in order to save her people. Esther then makes a request to the king. And this is really kind of like uh, where the drama of the story picks up. To her great relief, Xerxes receives her by extending his scepter and welcome. Right? This is why Esther should be made into a movie. There's all these like, great moments where like, Esther is coming in and is like, am I going to die? And then you can just imagine the king like, deciding and then you know, welcoming this person. And he says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even if it is half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Now, we don't know if this is literal. This is kind of the classic kind of thing that happens in these old literatures is that people will say some grand thing, and what they mean is like, you're free to ask for whatever you want. And Esther replies, my petition, by the way, like we're all thinking she's going to say, please save my people, right? But what she says is, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for you. Then I will answer the king's question. 
So, first of all, this is like kind of like not what we expect, right? And even when they go to this first banquet, she still doesn't tell Xerxes what it is that she wants. But they're at this, at this ba banquet together. Haman is at this banquet, right? Because it's a specially set banquet for Xerxes and Haman and Esther. Esther's holding it in honor of Xerxes and presumably in honor of Haman. And she says, tomorrow I'll tell you what my real request is. And Haman, who already kind of thinks he's hot stuff, is at this fancy banquet being held by the queen, who he does not know is Jewish, and, and Xerxes, who is the emperor of this, the, basically the world to him. So he is on his way home from this great banquet where he believes he's being honored, and in fact, kind of is being honored, and he sees Mordecai continuing not to bow to him. Mordecai sitting by the gates of the palace, not rising. And Haman burns with this an amazing hatred, right? He's already plotted to kill all of the Jewish people. And yet, on his way home from this banquet where he has been honored, Mordecai continues not to give him the respect he believes he de deserves. And so he goes home that night and speaking with his wife and his family, decides to erect a pole, a, like 75 feet high pole, that he's going to request the next day that Xerxes impale Mordecai on. Right, this is very grim, right? I don't, I don't know what the VeggieTales version of this is. It's probably like barbecue skewer, I don't know. I mean, it's very, I mean I'm, we're laughing, but it's extremely grim. I don't know, somebody will explain to me afterward what, how they do this part of the story. Um, that night, Xerxes can't sleep. This is the day before, the day before uh, Haman is gonna ask for Mordecai to be impaled, the day before Esther is gonna ask uh, Xerxes for this great request. Xerxes can't sleep. And when he's can't sleeping, remember earlier I set up this part of the story, so hopefully you remember. I don't see any of you taking notes, so you've already, you've already not, not done as I hoped you might do. But that's okay. Um, Xerxes can't sleep, and what he says, and this is like the most classic like emperor self-aggrandizing thing, he has the book of the history of his reign read to him while he can't sleep. Yeah, very boring, but also like, whoa. Um, in that book, he hears the story of how Mordecai has saved his life. And he asks his advisors, has anything been done to honor Mordecai? And they say, no, nothing has been done to honor Mordecai. That next morning, when Xerxes is puzzling over what he might do to honor Mordecai, he sees Haman coming from a long way off. Haman who is coming to ask for the death of Mordecai. And before Haman can ask, Xerxes says, what should, I, what should the king do for a person he wishes to honor? And Haman, thinking it's him that's going to be honored, says, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe and king, a robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them, let them robe the man the king delights to honor and let them on the horse through the city, lead them through the horse on the city in the streets, proclaiming before him, this is what the king has done to honor the man he delights in. And in the great reversal, Xerxes tells Mordecai, or excuse me, Xerxes tells Haman to go and do that for Mordecai. Haman does this, and you can imagine him doing it through gritted teeth, 
leading him through the city on this horse and saying this is what, a, what the king does to a person he wishes to honor. And he goes away home, like, sad, ashamed, because he knows that his plan is, is probably not going to come to fruition. And before he can do very much, Esther's servants arrive to take Haman to a banquet. At the banquet, drinking wine, Xerxes finally asks Esther, tell me what your real request is. Even if it is the half, half of the kingdom, I will give it to you. And then Esther answers, and this is an important part here, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I would not have kept quiet or I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. So before I move on, notice that Esther does not say, "Do it, protect me and the Jewish people because it's the right thing to do. Right? This is a really crucial moment in the story. She doesn't say, any good person would do this. She doesn't say, listen to reason, King Xerxes. She says, if I have found favor with you, if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is just not how we expect to do things. All right, we'll come back to it, but um, at this point, naturally, Xerxes wants to know why he needs to do this, right? Because he's confused. Who would try to kill the queen? Who would try to kill the Jewish people? He's somehow forgotten that he signed the edict in the first place, right? And this is like part of the story is that Xerxes kind of doesn't remember all the things that he has done. Um, and Esther reveals that it was Haman who set this whole thing up. Xerxes storms off into the garden and Haman and Esther are left there. And Haman starts to beg for his life from Esther because he has realized what is going to happen. And in the moment where Haman is probably standing before Esther, he falls onto the couch where Esther is sitting and Xerxes comes back in the room and Xerxes does not know what he is looking at and says, will he even molest the queen while she is in the house with me? And at this moment, I mean, it's just like an outrageous story, right? This is not the VeggieTales version again, right? And at this moment, this is like a terrifying moment. This is where you can really imagine a, a movie. A, it literally says in scripture that a bag is placed over Haman's head. And this signifies that Haman will be executed. And Haman is taken and impaled on the very stake that he set up for Mordecai to be impaled upon. At this time, Xerxes then takes the signet ring from off of the impaled Haman's hand and gives it to Mordecai because Esther has told him that Mordecai is her relative. And Xerxes gives Haman's property to Esther. And even if, like, you know, this is the... Well, I'll, I'll, let me tell you, tell you this first, and then I'll have a quick break. Not, real, not a real break. Um, at this point, Esther turns to the king and says, if it pleases the king, here we are again, not if it's the right thing to do, if it pleases the king... And if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, there it is finally, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? 
how can I bear to see the destruction of my family? So this is the part where you think like, all right, so another decree is written to cancel the old decree and the Jewish people are saved, the end, right? Not the end, it turns out. There is a lot more to the story. And uh, we kind of just assume that things kind of get tied up and that it's kind of like the blood is over, there's no more like violence, there's no more massacre. And we kind of think that things are fine. But remember, like, there is a legally sanctioned massacre. It's not some secret conspiracy. It is like a legally sanctioned massacre of the Jewish people. And by rule of the king, no edict of the king can ever be truly canceled. You can't withdraw a real ruling of the king. So he he issues a counter edict, or the Esther on behalf of the king. Esther and Mordecai write this counter edict, basically. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies on the appointed day in the future, the same day that they were going to be killed. Both edicts had to be honored by law. So the edict of Esther is made in response to the edict against the Jewish people. The Jewish people celebrated because they knew that at the very least, the tide had somewhat turned in their favor. Now this is the last part, which is really uh, the part where I think people will become uncomfortable uh, if you weren't already. Because of the strength of the Jewish people and because it had become known that Mordecai was of of great respect and was uh, now the grand vizier, top advisor to the king and was himself Jewish and that Esther was was herself Jewish, um, many of the leaders of the provinces aligned with the Jewish people. And so on that day that was decided to have uh, been the day where the Jewish people were going to be annihilated, they struck down, the Jewish people struck down who they pleased who hated them. 500 people were killed in the fortress of Susa on the first day, all the sons of Haman, and 75,000 across the provinces. Right, so who who knows if this is literally true? It it almost certainly isn't literally true, Um, but something like this happened. Despite all the killing, no plunder was taken for the Jewish people. So they didn't take plunder even though they were allowed to. And after all this, Esther says, If it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. And so the next day, another 300 people were killed in the fortress of Susa, and all of Haman's sons were impaled on poles. The Jewish people understandably rested and celebrated the next day. And uh, as as one of my... uh, uh, friends who is Jewish said, many, uh, many Jewish holidays have the, the logic behind them. Someone tried to kill us, they didn't, let's eat. Um, it's the kind of like structure of many Jewish holidays is that people do plot to kill the Jewish people, they, uh, they fail, and then the Jewish people celebrate. Okay, that's the story. <laughs> and I have a few minutes now I can tell you what you might want to take out of this. And you'll see why I needed to tell you the entire story. Um, The first thing, and this is, I hope, well, if nothing else speaks to you, this will speak to you. And this is something I think John mentioned at the beginning. 
Esther is faithful and never hears from God, right? Abraham hears from God, Noah hears from God, Mary hears from God, Jonah hears from God, Paul hears from God. Esther does great things and never hears from God. So, yeah, I I can't do a full application for you, but you may not feel like you're hearing from God, but it does not mean that you are not faithful. Esther is caught in the middle of completely unjust situations and completely unjust systems, and yet she acts in ways that do justice for her people and in ways that demonstrate her faith. In case it needs to be said, um, living under a just system with just rules and just people is not a requirement for being faithful. It is possible to be faithful in the face of injustice, and probably the most high-stakes time to be faithful is in the face of injustice. All of this leads me to say, and this is the part where if you were going to write down one thing, I would say this, or maybe the brief version that I'm about to tell you. This is the kind of sentence a philosopher would write, but people are willing to listen to you just to the extent that they believe that you would die for them. Esther does not say, do it because it's right. She does mention that one time. But it's mostly, if you have found favor with me, if it's pleasing to you. People are just not moved by pure reason. Another way of putting this, if it was too complicated, people can hear you better when you're on the cross. Your voice goes further when you're on the cross. I was taking one of the only pauses just to let that sink in. But notice, it just doesn't mean that Esther has to be perfect. Esther is not perfect. Esther wavers in her faith. She almost doesn't do anything to save the Jewish people. Um, She doesn't act as radically as we might want her to, um, at least at the beginning. Um, And despite all this, she acts in ways that Xerxes can understand and respect and acknowledge and then respond to. All right, here's the most complicated part. The story of Esther creates a tension that I think is released and resolved by Jesus. So that part at the end where Esther seeks the blood of the people who oppose the Jewish people, and yes, we can build in a caveat that of course you had to write this counter edict because you can't cancel the first one. So you have to set it up so that the Jewish people can defend themselves. And in fact, they do. But I think in in all of us, we just wonder, like, what is this kind of justice? A justice that sets whole groups against each other. And often in the Old Testament, that sets God in opposition, well, and God in conflict with all human beings. We don't feel like an eye for an eye really covers this, right? We feel like it's too much. Um, There's a lot of violence like this in the Old Testament. And I think it makes this uncomfortable, not just because we think it's, like, in detail not just, but because we imagine that there are people who aren't Jewish in, the, in Xerxes' kingdom who are not excitedly sharpening their swords for the death of the Jewish people. There are people who are, have family members who might be like that, but who themselves will be killed in response. And we imagine ourselves in that position, and we imagine, we imagine people we love in that position. Here is the really hard part. No one is left out of the range of God's wrath. Not anyone, right? 
This is the part where I'm leaving the story to tell you about the character of God. Haman is a wicked anti-Semite, it is true. But Esther's form of justice leaves us feeling pretty cold. How could we possibly resolve this? So here I have a little asterisk where like, I'm gonna say a whole bunch of stuff about Jesus and I'm not gonna defend it. I'm not gonna give you reasons to believe it. I'm just gonna start telling you about it. Jesus is the son of God himself, the rightful anointed one, the Christ. He leaves a perfect unsuffering comfort with God the Father to become an incarnate and living person who is beautiful and loving and kind and perfectly righteous and dies a horrific, unjust death where he is impaled on a tree by a Roman empire. He dies for all of us, not just for the few people who are good. It is almost like Jesus comes to fulfill two seemingly contradictory edicts, a law of love and grace and a law of justice and wrath. And it seems like there's no way that those two edicts can be carried out at the same time, and yet it is in his crucifixion and resurrection that both a law of love and a law of wrath are carried out. So he's raised back to life by the Holy Spirit, and he does not just merely die for us, he shows a way forward for us. We can return again in the second coming. All right, you're like, why are you talking to me about Jesus, Sam? Like, this makes no sense, we're already at 30 minutes, why aren't you just wrapping this thing up? All right. Here is the part where it's probably overwhelming for you to put all of this together. So I'm just going to suggest to you some of the connections you might consider between Esther and Jesus. Jesus is the Esther who reveals Haman's wickedness and then goes willingly to be impaled on Haman's behalf, knowing fully well that Haman may not recognize this fact. Jesus is the Esther who defeats the reign of sin and death, not through the power of empire, but by being crucified by empire itself. Jesus is the Esther, this is one is very complicated, but it fits. Jesus is the Esther who saves humanity not by entering a throne room uninvited to reveal a plot and be rewarded with silver, but by descending from a throne room to be betrayed in a plot paid for with silver. Jesus does not demand the blood of the wicked. Jesus pours out his blood for the wicked, for all and no one is left out. And don't worry that Jesus is not going to serve justice because there is a final judgment and there is no way to escape that, the wrath in that final judgment except through Jesus. All right, there's too much for me to remember and say about this to wrap it up, but if you remember nothing else about Esther, remember that despite living under an unjust system, Esther's character enabled her to remain faithful Within, a system that, within that system and ultimately act in ways which would not have otherwise been allowed. It is not enough to act on principle alone. We must be like Jesus if we hope to move the hearts of others. All right, I'll pray as uh, Justin's coming up. Lord, that is so much. I pray that even one thing sinks in. And more than just knowing it, Lord, I hope, I hope we act on it, that we are like you. I pray that we would worship you and come together in communion, Lord. Amen.
Yeah. <laughs> this, hang on just a second, Ricky. It is here at this table that the cataclysmic collision of all that Sam just brought to us from the words through the story of Esther, that God is ready to meet with us here today. Today, he has prepared a banquet for you to meet with you and let you know again that he has taken your place. That he would go to the point of death, right? That it is to the full extent that he is willing to die for you. And so we come to this table and join with him again in his death. The illustration that we have in baptism, which we get to celebrate today, right after the service, we get to go see this before our very eyes, right where we join with Christ in his death. And in doing so, we are raised to new life that we can live in the fullness that he has prepared, that he's prepared before the foundations of the earth. This rescue plan has been unfolding. And so today, as we take the bread and the cup, we taste, we see the goodness of God that he has rescued us. And so maybe today, this is, this is the first time, and maybe it is coming to the table that you're feeling a little more like Haman. That he is ready to reveal some of the ugliness of our lives. But in revealing that, he meets us in such a way to heal it that he would take the sentence of death for us. Maybe you are wrestling with being in an Esther-like situation. That for such a time as this, you are where you need to be because God wants to speak a word through you and do a work to bring good through your faithfulness so as you take the bread and the cup today, have confidence to know the Lord is with you in those steps of faithfulness. So no matter where you are today, no matter where you are coming from, the Lord will meet with you here. So we remember that night that Jesus was sitting at the table with his disciples and he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this, this is my blood. The blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so we do this week after week. We invite you to the table. We're going to come down this aisle um, and come across the front. Our servers are ready. They will tear off a piece of the bread and hand it to you. 
and then you can dip it in the cup. You can take it back to your seat to receive it and reflect. You can take it as you walk. There's also a gluten-free option here as well. Just indicate that you need that as you come up. So let's pray together. Almighty God, we just ask now that you pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and the cup, that they may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus for the redemption of the world, for the forgiveness of our sin. God, empower us today to live fully as you created us to be in freedom and peace with you in your kingdom to share the good news with all the world. We pray all this in the mighty, holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Come to the table.